Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Try it again. Good Merry Christmas. Hey, so it's hard to believe that we are now in the Advent season and that we are going to be moving for the next several weeks through the different Advent sermon topics that are laid out for us by the church every year. And we're going to be taking a look this morning at hope. Next week we'll be on peace. Then there will be love followed by joy. Now, as I begin to bring this sermon this morning, I'm well aware of the following reality, and it's this is that this sermon that I'm going to bring on hope is really uh, a sermon that's foundational for the rest of the sermons that will be preached. I also know as I'm beginning to preach this sermon that it's got a lot more scripture than normal. It's very foundational and maybe even some of us might find it a little bit more teaching than preaching. But the goal that I have for this sermon on hope is that you would understand what the Gospels want us to understand about Christmas. That we would not miss the message that the Gospel writers bring to us about the birth of Jesus. I say this every year when we get to Christmas, and that is is that every pastor, woman and man around this country and around the world, we have to bring multiple sermons every year on Christmas. And what's interesting is only two of the four Gospels mention the birth of Jesus. That's the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Matthew focuses on Joseph. The Gospel of Luke focuses on Mary. The other two Gospels never mention Christmas. And by the way, other than Matthew and Luke, the Christmas story is never mentioned anywhere in the Newer Testament. But what's fascinating is all four Gospels focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Easter is the point of the Christmas faith. I'm sorry, the Christian faith. But Christmas is something that is mentioned by two of the Gospels. Now, what I'm going to do is bring a very basic biblical teaching on hope. But again, it's foundational because from it, the rest of the sermons will kind of find their strength and they'll move from that. Now, as I've mentioned, only two of the Gospels mention the birth story. The first one is the Gospel of Matthew. I want to read a quick text, Matthew 1.23. Here's what the text tells us. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That's a direct quote from Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah chapter 7.14 says this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What's the purpose of a sign? A sign points to something else. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. The Gospel of Luke, which focuses on Mary, gives us this part of the episode of the birth of Jesus, And we pick up a quick reading in Luke 2, 11 through 14. The angel, by the way, is making this announcement. 
Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. That phrase, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, is taken from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 9:6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. One of the things that's easy to miss when you read the Newer Testament accounts of the birth of Jesus is this. Both of the gospel writers want you to know that the book of Isaiah is the foundational reality for everything they're telling you. And if you want to understand the birth of Jesus fully, if you want to grasp who Jesus really is, the book of Isaiah is essential as part of the Christmas story. We're going to come back to that in just a few moments. Now again, this sermon is about hope. It's about hope. I don't know how you are, but I've seen a deficit of hope in the world in which we live. But in the scriptures, those of us who are followers of Jesus, the gospels call us to an understanding of hope, what it is and where to find it. Now in every sermon that I preach, near the end of the sermon, there'll be a phrase, feet to your faith. I believe that if faith is not lived out practically, what's the point? But feet to your faith begins at the beginning of this sermon. Because when it comes to hope, feet to your faith is critical. Here's the Greek word for hope that's found in the Gospels. Hope is the Greek word elpis. It comes from elpo, which means to anticipate and to welcome. Properly, it's translated with the expectation of what is sure, hope. It's also translated through other words, hope, expectation, trust, and confidence. That's how the word elpis is translated in your Newer Testament. But the question begins to be asked, where do you get your hope from? Where do you find your hope? Hope in the biblical mind is something that is certain. It's confident. You can trust it. Now, for 23 years, having lived here in Charlottesville, I have hoped to accomplish something. I began hoping for this hope 23 years ago when we moved here and I read a list of certain things that every true UVA graduate must do before they graduate. It's a long list. Many of those things on the list are things a pastor should never do. But one of them stuck out to me. And so for 23 years, I have hoped to be able to do this. And so about three weeks ago, I was not preaching, 
And so I went to Bodo's Bagels with my wife. She goes every Sunday morning and picks up these big boxes of Bodo's sandwiches that we feed everyone who serves. So I went with her, and it was my opportunity for my hope to be fulfilled. And here was my hope, that I would be number one at Bodo's. (laughs) Amen. And so I was number one for a brief moment in life, literally number one. So here I was early in the morning, and I went in. I was so excited. I had my nose pressed against the glass. It bodos on Emmett. Just couldn't wait to get in. Door opened. I ran to the front counter, and then I picked up the bagels, and I said, well, I need the receipt. I need number one. And the guy said, well, this is a commercial deal. This receipt isn't number one. And I looked around, and no one else was in line. And I said, well, how can I be number one? And she said, you have to buy something. And so I said, what's the cheapest thing on the menu? And so we negotiated, and I bought a plain bagel with cream cheese. That's what I bought, under three bucks, and I got the number one receipt. I'm so grateful that my hope was fulfilled because I'd had this hope. By the way, um, I want to give a quick shout-out to Owen Shiflett. Owen, you didn't know this was coming. But Owen, in high school, just won. He was the number one runner in the Southeast Regional Cross-Country Meet for the United States of America. So congratulations, Owen. He actually worked for his number one. All I did was get first in line. But Owen, there's a lot of similarities between us with that. But in thinking about that hope, that hope that was fulfilled, For 23 years, I've hoped for this. By the way, my wife has so many number one Bodo's receipts. She doesn't even keep them anymore. She just has tons of them. But I wanted that hope for myself. But here's what I want to tell you. That hope is actually a goal. It's not really hope. You see, a goal is something you're trying to achieve. It's something that you're trying to accomplish. It's something that you're trying to do. And what we know is a lot of people put hopes in their goals. We know that there are athletes who have won gold medals. They've hoped for it their entire life. And when they achieved it and got the gold medal, they slipped into a deep, deep depression. And here's why. What they had hoped in wasn't a hope It was actually a goal. And the hope they'd hoped in could not deliver and didn't. You see, hope is different than a goal. Hope is something that you can actually trust in. It's an expectation that has full confidence that it will be fulfilled. Hope is something that is extremely important to the human life. So I ask you a question, where's your hope? What have you placed your hope in? Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12 says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope that never arrives makes the heart sick. Something that you put your hope in that continues to elude you will leave you heart sick. But when you place your hope in the right thing, 
and it is fulfilled. It's like sitting in the Garden of Eden. It's that space where things are as God had intended them to be before the dysfunction and the corruption of the world crept in to creation. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is the tree of life. What's interesting to note is that in the birth of Jesus, both gospel writers reach back to the book of Isaiah. There's a reason for this. Because in the birth of Jesus, both Matthew and Luke see something that can be missed. They actually see hope. They recognize hope. And the reason why they're reaching back to the book of Isaiah, whose prophet lives 700 years before Jesus was born, is because the theme of the book of Isaiah, and we're going to go into this relatively deeply in this moment, begins with corruption. Then it goes to God's purifying judgment, but it ends in hope. You see, if you were to read the book of Isaiah and the prophet that wrote it who lived 700 years before Jesus, you would discover that the book of Isaiah begins with a clear vision of God in all his holiness. God in all of his splendor and his wonder. And what stuns the prophet is he steps into the presence of God and actually survives. He lives. He lives. And through that experience, God begins to let him know what will happen to the nation of Israel. And so Isaiah writes his prophetic book, again, remember, 700 years before Jesus was born. And in that book, if you were to read it, you would discover that Israel has been looking to the culture around the cultures around it to determine how to live and how to do life. Because of that, they become self-serving and corrupt. They become self-promoting and angry and violent. And so what we discover is, is that the prophet Isaiah begins to speak for God against the nation of Israel. And he announces that Israel will become a stump that Israel was at one point a great tree, but God will cut the tree down and then set it on fire. So Israel will become a smoldering stump. God's judgment is coming. But in chapters seven and nine, the prophet brings hope. In God's economy, there's always hope with judgment. They are always together. So we discover that Israel is going to become a smoldering stump. But the prophet Isaiah, as he sees into the future, God allows him to know and allows him to announce that from that stump will come a thin little branch, a thin little shoot. And from that shoot, the world will be transformed. As you read through the book of Isaiah, and it's a lengthy book, you come to chapter 42. And in chapter 42, the prophet Isaiah begins to announce that there will come a king. And this king will actually look more like a servant than a king. But before that king arrives, two definitive things will happen. 
Number one, Israel will be conquered by Assyria. Isaiah prophesied to anyone who would listen that the nation of Assyria would come and destroy God's people. And then he made another prophecy. The second prophecy was that the nation of Babylon would come on the heels of Assyria and would completely dominate the Jewish people for centuries. Well, what's amazing is it happened. Assyria attacked during the life of Isaiah. But 150 years after Isaiah was dead, Babylon conquered the people of God. And because Isaiah's prophecies were true, because he accurately predicted that Assyria would come and then Babylon would come, because he was so accurate and so detailed, the people of Israel believed that Isaiah could be trusted, that his prophecies would come true. And because of that, during the time of Jesus, people were reading the book of Isaiah. If Isaiah was right that Assyria would come, and then 150 years after his death that Babylon would come, maybe the hope in the book could be trusted too. And so from Isaiah 42 on, the writer begins to announce that a unique person will show up on the scene. Again, this unique person would be a shoot from the smoldering stump of what was left of Israel. And when this person came on the scene, they would be humble and gentle and kind. And the way they would rule would not be with a fist of iron or with military might. This king would be a servant at heart. This person would be humble and this person could be trusted. And so, when we think about Christmas, both Christmas writers reach back to the book of Isaiah and say, this is him. The one Isaiah prophesied about is here. He has arrived. But what fascinates me is that here's how Isaiah prophesies about this future king. I want you to listen to this lengthy chapter about who this person would be. As I read, see if it reminds you of someone. 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah looks into the future and here's what he announces. This person who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that, should that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of it us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life as, a, as an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What we discover is, is that Isaiah looks into the future and he begins to speak of this king that would come in whom you can put your hope. And if you put your hope in him, you will never be disappointed. Then we look back to the gospel of Matthew. And in the Gospel of Matthew, what we find is, as Matthew announces the birth of Jesus, he announces that this is the one that God had announced, saying this person will be Emmanuel, God with us. The prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. But then you begin to read the Gospel. And the life that Jesus is living does not seem to be the life you would expect. He's born in a manger not in a palace, and yet he's a king. Herod, who is the king, makes a move to kill him. Jesus has to flee to Egypt. He looks nothing like a king. He has no military. He pulls a sword on no one. And when one of his disciples does, he rebukes him and tells him to put away the sword. This king is fundamentally different than any others. He is humble. He's gentle and he's kind, but people opposed him. As we close out our time, we pick up Matthew chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Here we discover that Jesus is healing someone. It says, then he, meaning Jesus, said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. You see, anyone who put their hope in this king was finding that all of the dysfunction and brokenness around them is being healed. As we read on in the Gospel of Matthew, it says this, Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. And a large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. 
Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. And then this last phrase. In his name, the nations will put their hope. You see, halfway through Jesus' public ministry, Matthew, who writes the Gospel of Matthew, decides he must remind us that Jesus truly is the one that Isaiah prophesied about. That he truly is the Prince of Peace. That his kingdom would never end. And 2,000 years after his birth, we sit here in a sanctuary in Charlottesville and we still speak of him because what Isaiah prophesied is true. But I want you to notice what Matthew challenges us with. He says, in his name, the nations will put their hope. When Matthew stops to remind us of the book of Isaiah, it's because Jesus has been having a bad few months. In the beginning of his ministry, everyone loved him. It was going the way you would expect. But all of a sudden, people begin to turn against him. He is pressed on every side. His disciples aren't getting it nor getting him. And people are now plotting to kill him. Have you ever felt like the winds of life have turned against you? Have you ever felt like you were in a bad place? The text wants you to know that Jesus knows. That he's been there too. But that in him there's a hope in times like this. That if you will open up your heart to him, there truly is a hope that can carry you through. Let's stand together as we close. Isaiah has given us words of hope about Jesus. Jesus gives us the hope that we need. Let's take just a moment and close our eyes before we worship. Have you placed your hope in him? Have you trusted him? Has your hope been put in him? There's no better place to put your hope for he truly is the one that Isaiah spoke of.